You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. We will begin reading at verse 15, and then we will read to the end of verse 26. John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is our desire that we would hear your voice in the text of Scripture, that you would match our needs with what is revealed here and encourage our hearts together. Spirit of God, be our teacher, and may your word be our guide, and may your glory be our concern. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think that the words that I just read to you in John chapter 4 are the most fascinating words of this whole discussion between Jesus and the woman at the well. Everything that has been said up till now between these two people, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, has led to this climax, as it were. This is the most fascinating section because it is the most loaded theologically. And at first glance, it seems as if the woman is trying to get Jesus off track, but that's really not what's going on here. Everything has led up to this, and the words that she asks when she says to him, Our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That question was the most natural, the most logical next question that this woman in this situation would ask. Jesus has told her back in verse 10, you remember, that her she had two holes in her ignorance or her understanding, in her knowledge and understanding. Number one in verse 10, Jesus said, you don't know the gift of God. That is, you don't know what you need, and you don't know why you need it. You have no idea of what eternal life is, or how eternal life is gained, or that God wants to give you eternal life, or even that she needed eternal life. She didn't know that. Second, she had no idea who she was speaking to. And Jesus told her that. You don't even know who you're talking to. And if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now all of that sort of led up to Jesus taking the opportunity in verses 15 and 16 and following to show her her need for a Savior. He had to open up for her the commandments and show her that she needed to be saved. She didn't know that. So since she didn't know that of the gift of God, of eternal life and what was necessary... Jesus had to show her that. So he walked her through that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, basically is what he was doing. When she confessed to him in saying, I perceive that you are a prophet, that was a confession, you're right. 
I've had five husbands, and I'm living with one now that is not my husband. The very next thing that Jesus is going to do in verse 26 is reveal to her who he was. And sandwiched between her recognition that he is a prophet and his revelation that he is the Messiah is this discussion on the nature of worship. And these verses are loaded. They are absolutely pregnant with meaning and with theology. And I never, never cease to marvel at the depth of what is here contained in the Lord's words. Let me give you an idea of what is in store in the next few weeks. Because we often read over these verses, but we don't really think of what they mean. We don't necessarily mind them. So what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is sort of unpack them and try and glean everything that is here from Jesus' discussion of what constitutes true worship. The first thing that's packed into these verses is all of the cultural and historical things that were going on in the setting. And we're going to unpack most of that today. There was Jewish worship and there was Samaritan worship. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ basically declaring what he thought about Samaritan worship and what he thought about Jewish worship. So what was the Lord's assessment of Jewish worship and Samaritan worship? It's contained right here. What was what did the Lord think about this divide between Jews and Samaritans? It's in these verses. Second, we get a glimpse here into the into the nature of God. Jesus said God is spirit, and that boils down to the doctrine of the spirituality of God. God is not a man. He's not like us. He doesn't have a physical body. He didn't have a beginning. He is, in essence, spirit. And that has all kinds of implications and ramifications for our worship, our day-to-day conduct, and what it is that we do here. There's a third thing that's packed into those verses, and that is, how do we assess true worship and false worship? How do you know if what you just did for the last 20 to 25 minutes constituted true worship or the worship of an idol. That's a pressing concern, is it not? You would want to know if you just worshipped an idol for the last 20 minutes, wouldn't you? Well, what Jesus tells us about true worship and false worship in these verses helps us to evaluate what we do here on a Sunday morning and what I offer to God in my own quiet time and my private time and my day-to-day walk. All of that is contained in Jesus' description here of what constitutes true worship. There is right worship and there is wrong worship. You can worship the right God wrongly And you can worship the wrong God rightly. You can do everything rightly on the outside, everything rightly even if what's going in on your heart, and you can offer right worship to an idol. And you can worship the true God, the right God, in all of the wrong ways. How do you know if you have offered right worship to the wrong God or wrong worship to the right God or right worship to the right God or wrong worship to the wrong God? All of that is right here in John chapter 4. And that's one of the things we're going to be covering. A fourth thing that's contained in these verses is an answer to the question, what is it that made me a worshiper of God? That's contained in the phrase, the Father seeks such people to be His worshipers. How did I move from being an idol worshiper, a person in whose heart was an idol factory, how did I move from being an idol worshiper, a pagan, a lover of darkness, to being somebody who longs and wants to worship the one true God? There was something going on there. What was happening? The Father was seeking True worshipers. That's what was happening. So all of that's packed into it. So we're going to have sort of a little mini-series, as it were, a mini-series of what constitutes true worship. What is right worship and what is wrong worship as we begin to unpack these these verses. And by mini-series, I know some of you think that a mini-series to me is a couple of years long. By mini-series, I mean just a few weeks to go through these verses as we as we really look at what is worship and how do we evaluate what we do here. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Because true worship has to have certain elements. Certain things have to be absent from it 
And certain things have to be contained in it in order for it to be true worship. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I've been worshiping God wrongly for years. That's a pressing concern of mine. I hope it's a pressing concern of yours as well. So John chapter 4. When we left off last time, we were in verse 19. At the woman's confession, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I said, that sounds like a very minimalistic statement, but in actuality it's not when you understand who that was coming from. It was coming from a Samaritan woman. From a Samaritan understanding, they didn't recognize any books other than the first five books of Moses. And therefore, they didn't recognize any but two prophets, Moses and the coming Messiah. Now, they knew that Moses had already come because he gave them the first five books of our Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they were looking forward to the coming of what was to them the second prophet, the Messiah. So the fact that this woman would say to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, is an indication that in her mind she is already acknowledging the potential of who this man was. In her mind she is already thinking in terms of, Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that was coming? Is this the Messiah? She knows he's more than just an ordinary man because he has revealed to her his knowledge of her past and her sin and her heart and all the details of it when he had said to her, go fetch your husband. And then he revealed to her that he knew exactly how many husbands she had had, exactly the fact that she was living with a a live-in lover at the time in fornication and that she was an adulteress. Jesus knew all of that. And when she realized that he knew her heart, she said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now verse 20. Look at verse 20. Our fathers, this is still the woman speaking, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now that seems like the whole train of this conversation has gotten off tracks all of a sudden, doesn't it? What does this have to do with living water, with spiritual thirst, with the well, with Jacob's well, with you're asking me for a drink? What does this have to do with my five husbands? What does this have to do with my living lover? What does this have to do with my adultery, my fornication, and my sin? What does her question have to do with any of that? Well, there are two possible ways of understanding the intent and the meaning of her question. And commentators are kind of evenly divided, and I think that either one of these is possible, though I favor the second one. The first possible way of understanding this woman's intention with her question is that she was trying to get Jesus off track. She doesn't want to talk about her adultery. She doesn't want to talk about her five husbands. She doesn't want to talk about living in fornication. She doesn't want to talk about any of that. It's very uncomfortable for her. So she throws out what we would call a red herring. Do you know what a red herring is? A red herring is an argument that somebody raises to get you off track, to get you off focus, to change the subject. That's called a red herring. Do you know where the term red herring came from? I'm going to give you this. Just This is no extra charge for this. Hundreds of years ago in Europe, when they used to train scent hounds, in training a scent hound, they would take a fish that had been uh, cured strongly in brine and then smoked. And so the, the, the flesh of the, the meat of the fish was red. And in uh, training, <laughs> sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about. In training a scent hound, they would drag this fish through the woods to create a scent trail. And then they would train this young bloodhound, scent hound, to, tr- to follow that strong scent. And when the dog got it down to follow the strong scent, then they would try and train the dog to follow a weaker scent, like a fox or a badger or some other animal that didn't have as strong or as, as obvious of an odor. And then in training that dog to follow the weaker scent, they would drag this smoked fish that they had used to train the dog across the trail and off into the woods. And the intent was to train the dog that when he got to the stronger scent, to ignore that and go on with what he had started with, which was the weaker scent. And so when you took a red herring across the path of the dog, drug it across the path, it was intended to get the dog off track, to see if the dog would go off track. So when somebody throws out a red herring, what they're doing is they're dragging something across the trail of the conversation to get you sniffing off on something else, lest you finish the conversation, which going which makes them very uncomfortable. 
So you're witnessing to somebody and they say, well, yeah, I might be a sinner, but the Bible's full of contradictions. It was written by white men trying to suppress their religion upon the unsuspecting masses. Has nothing at all to do with the conversation. It is completely a red herring. Or somebody says, well, what about the, the Crusades and the Middle Ages and the Holy Wars and all the Christians fighting in that? What do you say about that? Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's a red herring. It's something that's intended to distract. Some people think that that's what the woman's doing here. She's simply dragging a red herring out of the, into the conversation in order to get him off into something else. In other words, the conversation's gone something like this. Go get your husband. And I have a husband. You're right. A husband you don't have. Five husbands you've had. And the one you now have, it's not your own husband. Yeah, well, what about this whole worship controversy between the Jews and Samaritans? You guys say Jerusalem, we say Gerizim. Let's talk about that. See how that? some people might say that's a red herring, trying to get him off track? She's uncomfortable talking about this. She wants to talk about that, so she throws it out. That's possible. I don't think that's what's going on. I think something else is going on. I think that her question is the genuine concern of her heart. It is her genuine concern. What am I to do now that I have come to this conviction of my sin? I have been married five times. I am an adulteress. I am a fornicator. I am living in fornication. Religion for this point, from up to this point has been the last thing from my mind. I am an outcast. I am a sinner. I understand that. You are a prophet. You understand that. You know me. It's true. I confess that. Now what do I do? Where do I go from here? If I am to have my sins taken care of, then I need to know, is it going to be at Gerizim or is it going to be at Jerusalem? Our fathers say Gerizim, you Jews say Jerusalem. So tell me, which is it? Where do I find the true God? Where do I find true worship? How do I become a true worshiper of the God who is able to forgive my sins? Is it going to happen at Gerizim or is it going to happen at Jerusalem? Jesus doesn't rebuke her for asking that question. That's an indication to me that she's not trying to get him off track. She's actually asking the pressing concern of her heart. Tell me how I can be made right with God. John MacArthur of this question of the woman says this, having been convinced of her sin and her need for forgiveness and having repented and agreed with Jesus' indictment, the woman wondered where she could go to meet God and to seek his grace and salvation. That's what she's asking. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, I think that she spoke utter under spiritual anxiety. She was alarmed by having her sins suddenly exposed. She found herself for the first time in the presence of a prophet. She felt for the first time the necessity of religion. But at once, the old question between the Jews and the Samaritans arose before her mind. How was she to know what was truth? What was she to believe? Her own people said that the Samaritan mode of worshiping God was correct. The Jews said that Jerusalem was the only place where men ought to worship. And between these two conflicting opinions, what was she to do? She was aroused to seriousness and asked, what was true religion? Her own nation said one thing, the Jews said another. What was truth? In short, her words were only another form of the jailer's question in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? That's what she's asking. What must I do to be saved? Do I go to Gerizim? Or do I go to Jerusalem? And look at how she... Ask the question, our fathers worship at this mountain. And her question goes to the legitimacy, her question addresses the legitimacy of the worship at Gerizim and the worship at Jerusalem. Which one of these two is right? If Gerizim is the place where men ought to worship, then the temple in Jerusalem was a fraud, it was a fabrication. The priesthood in Jerusalem was illegitimate, and all the sacrifices in Jerusalem accomplished nothing. And that city was no different than Bethel or or Bethlehem, or any other city in Israel. 
if Mount Gerizim is the place where men ought to worship. But if Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, then everything at Mount Gerizim is idol worship. It's not the worship of the true God. And for centuries, all of this has been going on in vain. So this was the controversy. This was the water cooler talk of the day. You have two temples, two people, two nations, two religious systems, two gods being worshipped, two sets of sacred books. Which one is right? Is there anybody who can really sort out all of the cultural confusion, all of the traditional confusion? The Jews say one thing, the Samaritans say another. Who are we to say what is right? And maybe none, nobody knows what the right answer to this is. That's their question. Two nations and two places. Which place should we worship? Now you notice that she does not mention the term Gerizim. So you're wondering, Jim, from the text you didn't get Gerizim. Where do you get the term Mount Gerizim? She just said, our fathers worshipped at this mountain. She didn't have to mention the word Gerizim because they were standing at the base of Gerizim. And right behind Jesus, or right behind her, on the front of the mountain, is a temple on Mount Gerizim. Do you remember several months months or weeks ago when we sort of laid out the map here in, in the sanctuary? I'll step down here just to wake some of you up. And I said that if our sanctuary was the nation of Israel, we had three sections, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee to the north, right? And the Lake of Galilee is up here. And Jesus was coming up from Judea. That is how we got to John 4 to begin with. He's coming up from Judea, and he stopped at Jacob's well. Jacob's well was sort of right in the middle of this landmass known as Israel. And if you looked out to the uh, west, as you look out to the west, there would at Jacob's well, there would have been two mountains, Mount Ebal on the north, which was the mountain of cursing, and Mount Gerizim on to the south, which was the mountain of blessing. So two mountains, and right between this valley, these two mountains, you can look out toward the Mediterranean Sea. Well, right on the southern slope of Mount Gerizim, was a temple being built. So if this is Mount Gerizim, there's a temple right on the back of this, which is a convenient place because there's not a lot of brush that needs to be cleared (laughs) in order to build a temple there. So Jesus is standing at Jacob's well, and he's having a discussion with the woman, and right in plain sight, closer than Schweitzer is to us, is Mount Gerizim and the temple, and Mount Ebal, the mountain of cursing. And so she asks him, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And I can imagine her pointing right up to the temple, which they could probably see from where they were standing. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem was the place where men ought to worship. Now, how did there come to be two different systems of worship, two different places of worship, for that one nation, that one land of Israel? It goes all the way back to just after the time of David and Solomon. After the death of Solomon, he had two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam became king of the southern kingdom, and there was a division. Remember this? It's in 1 Kings chapter 12. There was a division in the, in the land. And there was a revolt where Jeroboam took the ten tribes to the north and said, have, have at her, we're done. We're, we don't want any more to do with you guys and your rule in the south. So Judah and Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom was became known as Israel, later on Samaria, but Israel for the time being. And they, um, Jeroboam instituted or established the capital at Shechem which is right at the base, basically, of Ebal and Gerizim. And he put together an entire religious system in the north intended to keep people from going down south. Because if you've just led a revolt and you have a bunch of people in the northern kingdoms that are in the northern kingdom that are following your lead, then you know that if people are going down two and three times a year to the city of Jerusalem, that initial desire to follow you is going to wane because people are going to be going down there and it's going to be all the familiar sights and the smells of the temple, and the worship, and the true God, and the religion. So Jeroboam didn't want people traveling down and having their hearts turned back to the southern kingdom. So instead, he set up a false religious system in the northern kingdom at Shechem, at Mount Gerizim, 
the worship of an idol with its own priesthood and all of that. And about 400 years before Jesus, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And then sometime during that 400-year period of time, during the Maccabean, what's known as the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews came up from the south and destroyed the temple, which really put an ice on the relationship between the Jews in the south and the Samaritans in the north. And it sort of inflamed these hostilities between the two groups of people. So that's how there came to be a temple on Mount Gerizim. And in Jesus' day, it was a rebuilt or sort of a, a ruined temple of sorts. But they had a religious system going on on that mountain. And this had been going on for over 400 years. There had been a temple there for almost 400 years. So there's these two religious systems. Now, the Samaritans, they looked at Gerizim and they said, that is the place where men ought to worship. That's the place where God dwells. That's the place where God has established it. Now, if you had asked a Samaritan, what justification can you give for worshiping in Samaria and in at Gerizim as opposed to Jerusalem? They would have taken you back to Genesis. And this is indicated by the woman's question when she asked him, our fathers, our fathers, who's she referring to? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord first appeared to Abraham, he appeared to Abraham at Shechem, right by Gerizim. And it says in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he, that is Abraham, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then in Genesis chapter 33, verse 20, Jacob built an altar to the Lord at Shechem. And there's other history there with the children of Israel after they came out of the land of, uh, out of the wanderings in Egypt, uh, out of the wanderings after Egypt into the land of promise under Joshua, there was a significant thing that happened at Ebal and Gerizim. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Lord said to, through Moses, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today, by following other gods which you have not known. It shall come about that when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Okay, Remember, two mountains, blessing Gerizim, curse Ebal. Deuteronomy 27, Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For curses, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, and then Deuteronomy 27 and 28 goes on, to list all the blessings of the covenant and all the curses of the covenant. So Moses, the Lord had said through Moses, when you enter the land, gather everybody at these two mountains. And you put so many tribes on this mountain and so many tribes on that mountain. And the tribes on this mountain will reply after the Levites. The Levites will proclaim the blessings of the covenant. And all of the people there shall affirm the blessings of the covenant on Mount Gerizim. And you shall recite all of the things I promised you that will result to you if you obey me. And then they shall list off the curses. If you disobey me and go after foreign gods, I will curse you with these things. And all the people on Ebal recited the curses. And I think it's kind of a convenient thing because then from then on, every time you walk past Gerizim or going from north to south or south to north, there would be this massive monument to the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And according to Samaritan tradition, listen carefully, according to Samaritan tradition, not Scripture, it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham offered Isaac, and it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham met Melchizedek. So to a Samaritan, they would say, look, every blessed event 
in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our nation, happened not in Jerusalem, but where? At Gerizim. Abraham built an altar. Jacob built an altar. That was the mountain of blessing. Abraham met Melchizedek there. Abraham offered Isaac there. This is the mountain of God. Now, a Jew listening to that would have said, no, 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 hold on a second. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5 says, You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all the tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. A Jew would say, that was Jerusalem. A Samaritan would say, no, 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 that's Gerizim. It's just a difference of interpretation. We all agree there's one place to worship. As Samaritans, we say it's Gerizim. The Jews say, no, it's Jerusalem. And then a Jew might say, but have you not read Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, where the Lord says, I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel? Or have you not read Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Or did you not read the Psalms? Psalm chapter 48, we read this for the Scripture reading, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Not Mount Gerizim, Mount Zion. That's in Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 78, verses 68 and 69. God chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which He loved. And He built His sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which He has founded forever. Psalm 132, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion, and He has desired it for His habitation. Well, with such clear revelation on the subject of which mountain God should be worshipped on, Jerusalem as opposed to Gerizim, the temple in Jerusalem as opposed to the temple on Mount Gerizim, you would think that would forever settle the debate, wouldn't you? But it didn't settle the debate for the Samaritans. And do you remember why? They only recognized the first five books of Moses. You can quote the Psalms all day long to a Samaritan. They don't care what the Psalms say. They had no more respect for the Psalms or the historical books or chronicles than you and I would have for the Book of Mormon. It's just a bunch of religious writings from their own little quirky tradition. That's all it is to them. That's how a Samaritan would view it. And so there was this divide. Now friends, this was the pressing concern of this woman. If I am an adulteress, if I am a fornicator, if I am a lawbreaker, What must I do to be saved? I need to be a worshiper of the one true God and the one true religion. No idol will do. And so she asked the question, is that God to be found at Gerizim? Or is that God to be found in Jerusalem? Our fathers worshipped at Gerizim. Notice she doesn't quote scripture. Our fathers. She's arguing from tradition. Which, by the way, and I could camp on this, but I won't. Anytime tradition is elevated to the level of Scripture as authoritative, there is no end to the false doctrine that will ensue. Because all you ever need to do is just quote your tradition, and that settles the matter. But it ought not to settle the matter. She says, our fathers, and then she says to Jesus, but you Jews say Jerusalem. And she's not mocking him. She's not reproving him. She's genuinely seeking. How can I be made right with God? Which is it? You're a prophet. And since you're a prophet, you can give me an answer to this question. Is there anybody who can sort through all this cultural division and all the back and forth and the different arguments and the interpretation of Scripture? Is there anybody who can tell me how it is that I might be made right with God and where I might go to find the one true God? (laughs) And you know the irony of it is? She's standing in the presence of the one true God made flesh. 
that credible? Yeah, there's somebody who could tell you that. You happen to be talking to him. Now notice Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to her, Woman, believe me. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't reprove her. He doesn't chide her for asking the question. He doesn't respond to her as if she's trying to get him off track, or she's trying to distract him, or she doesn't want to deal with anything. I think Jesus understands. He knows this is the desire of her heart. She really wants, she's a true, she's truly seeking me. She's truly asking these questions because he has made her to feel the weight of her sin. And so she wants an answer to it. So he says, believe me. Now he says, believe me. And, and you and I would say the same thing. If somebody asked you a question and you were about to give them an answer that you know they're just not going to believe. There's just no way they're going to buy this. You might say something like this. You have to trust me when I tell you this. Or you have to believe me when I say. That's what he's saying. Believe me. Because he knows that he is about to give her an answer that would never have presented itself to the mind of a Jew and never would have presented itself to the mind of a Samaritan. No Jew and no Samaritan would ever have expected the answer that Jesus is about to give her. Never would have entered into their mind. The answer that Jesus gave her was almost scandalous. No Jew could conceive of a, of a, of a time or a situation under which God could be worshipped anywhere, not at Jerusalem and not at Gerizim, but just anywhere. No Jew would ever think that. And if you had got into the mind of this woman and, and asked her, what type of an answer do you expect from this Jewish prophet? She might have been expecting something like this. For Jesus to go on and on about the glories of the temple in Jerusalem, the glories of Jerusalem, begin to answer her question, focusing on Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't get involved in the controversy between Jews and Samaritans. He gives an answer that nobody would have expected. There's coming a time, there's coming a time, when neither at Jerusalem nor on this mountain will you worship the Father. No Jew would have said that. No Samaritan would have expected that. To them, everything was wrapped up with location. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Gerizim, the temple at Gerizim, at Shechem. Everything had to do with location. And Jesus went right over top of that and said, look, you got to understand something. There is coming a time. He says the same phrase in verse 23. He simply means a time that is coming that is soon. It's imminent. And actually it was there because the arrival of him inaugurated that time that he's describing. There's coming a time when neither at Jerusalem nor at Gerizim will you worship. Now that's an interesting phrasing in verse 21 because in verse 21, Jesus seems to allude, seems to allude to the fact that there was coming a time when worship at both locations would be impossible. In verses 22 to 24, which we'll get into next week, Jesus is talking about the worship at the two places being irrelevant. It wouldn't matter. But in verse 21, he seems to indicate there was coming a time when it would be impossible. Neither here nor in Jerusalem will you worship. He's predicting a time when worship would not be going on at Gerizim or Jerusalem. Now what is he describing? I think he is alluding there to a time of trouble in Palestine, in Israel, in 70 AD. There was a revolt and the Romans came in under the Roman general Titus and they sacked Jerusalem, destroyed their temple and just decimated that city. And they went to Mount Gerizim and they slaughtered thousands of Samaritans at their temple and at Shechem. Destroyed them. What did Titus do? He put an end to worship as the Samaritans knew it at Gerizim. And he put an end to worship as the Jews knew it at Jerusalem, 70 AD. But by that time, God was already being worshipped all over the then known world in every corner of the Roman Empire because Paul and the rest of the apostles had taken the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth through Samaria and all the way out to the far reaches of the empire, the then known world. So God was already being worshipped by his elect, 
by his church, by his children, not in Jerusalem and not in Shechem, but all over the world. There's coming a time when it won't happen here and it won't happen there. Boy, that's chilling. And Jesus' words were chillingly fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, what does all this mean for you and I? As far as application, let me give you two quick observations. First, the coming of Jesus Christ altered forever the manner and mode of our worship. Altered forever the manner and mode of our worship. Now, we're not tied to our place, are we? You say, well, I'm thankful for that. Because since I've been here, we've worshipped in one, two, three, four different locations, and we're moving back to number two soon. I'm thankful that worship is not tied to a particular location, not tied to a particular city, not tied to a particular building inside that city, because we don't worship according to all of the accoutrements and the attachments of the Old Covenant. All of the robes and the the garments and the, the symbols and the signs and the shadows and the feasts and the festivals and all the ceremonial things that went on and the sacrifices and all that went on with that, it has all been done away with in Christ. All of it. It has all been pushed aside. Before Christ, they worshipped in the shadows, as it were. We worship in full revelation, full light. We don't have a veil that separates us from God. We don't have to commit our trust to one person to walk behind the veil one day out of the year and offer an atonement for our sins. We don't have to trust in that. We have full access to the very throne of God. Why? Because that has been opened up for us. The veil has been torn in two. And all of the, all of the furniture and all of the attachments and all of the ceremony, all of it has been done away with in Christ. And we now have full access to the Father. What we have is so much clearer, so much better, so much more intimate, so much uh, more crystal clear than anything they had before Christ. The coming of Christ has forever altered the mode and the manner of worship. It's not a Jerusalem. It's not a Gerizim. And both of those religious systems, done away with. We now have what? The church, the new covenant, a new and better covenant, a lasting covenant. So much better. Second, I want you to observe that the first inkling of this woman's heart, after she had been convicted and acknowledged her sin, the first inkling of this woman's heart was to worship. Do you notice that? What was the first inkling of your heart when you got saved? Do you remember it? Mine was to offer praise and thanksgiving and adoration to God. I just wanted to be with God and with His people. Today, since all of the Old Testament ceremonial and ritual and all of that has been done away with and is set aside in Christ, all of that was the shadows, Christ is the substance. Now, today, God dwells in each of His people individually and He dwells among us corporately. So when we gather together as God's people, God is dwelling in each one of you. And you know why I like spending time with God's people? It's like spending time with God. I get a glimpse of what God is like when I spend time with His people. You know why I enjoy worship and fellowship and when we get together? Because it's like spending a lot of time with a whole bunch of God. More than just if I'm with you individually. And you know why I love you? And why you love other people? And you love me? If you happen to love me? You know why that is? It's because you love God in me. Or I love God in you. It's God in you that I love. Some of you I could never love in my flesh. Some of you, some of you could never love me without God in me. You never could. But when God is in you and God is in me, what I love about you is the fact that God is in you and you're His child and you reflect Jesus Christ and that makes you, un- I was going to say unlovable, uh, lovable to me because God dwells in His people individually and in His people corporately. And the first inklings of a redeemed, regenerated heart is to worship God. When this woman walked to the well that day, 
She had absolutely no idea what was in store for her, and I am positive that religion and spirituality and spiritual issues and the question of worship was the farthest thing from her mind. She was an immoral woman. Immoral. Loving darkness, loving her sin, unwilling to turn from darkness to light because she hated the light and loved the darkness and did not want her evil deeds to be exposed. That's the end of John chapter 3. And now she's having a discussion with this man about worship. True worship in the one true God. When she came to the well, she was flippant. How is it that you being a Jew asked me a Samaritan for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? That's a flippant reply. And now where's she at? How do I get right with the one true God? Tell me that. All the flippancy and the silliness aside, all of the distractions aside, I want to know how to truly worship. That's quite progress, isn't it? It is. Now, is this woman saved at this point? I don't know that we can say that. I think she gets saved eventually, later on in the text. Is she saved at this point? I don't know. I I wouldn't bank on that. But we can say this. What is it that has turned an idol worshiper into a seeker of the one true God? That is the Spirit of God. Man, in his unregenerate, natural state, does not seek after the one true God. He is an idol worshiper, and he loves darkness. What takes an idol worshiper and turns him into a worshiper of the one true God? Well, later on Jesus says, actually the Father that was seeking her. The Father was seeking her. That's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because the Father was seeking a worshiper. And that woman became that worshiper. So whether she was saved or not, I don't know. But I think we can say this. We are watching this woman's heart be changed right before our eyes, are we not? That we are. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word and this example that is before us. We thank you that you sought us out. We thank you that you have given to us a new, better covenant and that Christ has forever opened the veil and torn that asunder so that we might walk into the presence of our holy God unashamed in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for that access that has been granted and given to us. And we pray, O God, that you would impress upon our hearts to avail ourselves of that access and that true worship. Thank you that you have turned us from being idol worshipers and lovers of darkness into being lovers of light and lovers of yourself. We thank you that you have sought us to make us those true worshipers of you and that you love us like you do. We praise you. We confess our need for you and our love for you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.